Hi, it's Anna, and I'm here to offer a disclaimer uh, slash warning. My computer became a victim of the supply chain difficulties we're all experiencing, and so I had to record the last couple episodes on my phone, or at least I tried to record on my phone. There were mixed results. Please bear with us. Enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I have put on some muscle. (laughs) Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I am accepted in both Siege and Village. But that's because I've really tricked my Siege out, and it's great to host people. <laughs> Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of dependency theory and subjective expected utility. Today, we'll be talking about Villeneuve's Dune. Boom. Damn, we're going to talk about Dune. We're going to talk about Dune. I feel like we have uh, to have like a Hans Zimmer, like the Inception button that we can press, you know, <laughs> when we're doing this, given, especially given his soundtrack for this film. <laughs> In the next few weeks, we'll be talking about Event Horizon, Waterworld for our Schlock or Awe series, The Last Policeman, and Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is the basis for the film Blade Runner. We have lots of other ideas, but we are always taking suggestions. You can give us those suggestions via Twitter. I am at Anna Marie Cox. He is at Dan Dresner. We also have a Patreon. Dan, could you tell us more about the Patreon, please? Sure. So if you go to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash space the nation, you would get a whole host of possible benefits, particularly if you become a patron. There is swag. There is early access to podcast episodes. You get access to our Discord channel, which is funky in all sorts of good ways and in really none of the bad ones. You also get access to our monthly AMAs, which we do normally the first Saturday of every month. And if we get to 250 patrons and we are more than halfway there, we will do another special special patrons-only episode on a topic chosen by, you guessed it, the patrons, much as we did when we hit 100 patrons. Another great way to support the show that costs you nothing is to tell your friends and neighbors and or rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. What will you be rating and reviewing? You'll be rating and reviewing content like we're about to produce for you. Bong. Today's Today's content, as I said, is Dune, the current movie out in theaters. Dan, did you see this in the theater? I confess I did not, Anna. I saw it at home. I was going to go to the theater, and I got behind on last week. And then, of course, HBO Max, for reasons I don't know, but apparently to piss off Villeneuve, made the movie available the night before on HBO Max, so I decided to watch it that way. Oh, actually, it was in theaters on Thursday. Oh, okay. I mean, I don't know if that was advertised or not, but I saw tickets available for Thursday, and I showed at the theater and there was like no one there and I was like maybe is something wrong did I and like checked my phone a thousand times <laughs> and kind of walked in and there was this other couple that also looked kind of nerdy and they were looking around and I said to them are you here for Dune and they're like yeah and it wasn't even on like the the marquee oh that is <laughs> so okay we I can see your suspicion then yes okay yeah 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 so but it was in fact showing and oh. there were six people in the theater oh. but I highly recommend it as we've uh, referred to Hans Zimmer's Wrong. (laughs) And hearing it in theater is especially awesome. But Dan, people might know or have a feeling about why we're doing this movie. Could you talk about why you think we're talking about this movie? Oh, I don't know, Anna. I mean, it's only that we've been looking forward to this for the entire year. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say, I think when the first trailer dropped, we were like it, it, like the nadir of the pandemic, and so like the idea that we would actually get to see this movie, you know, it was. 
it was very exciting. And I, I say this, I was excited about watching this even before I had read the novel, which I had not read until we talked about it on this podcast. Yeah, I don't really have anything to add. I will remind people to go back and listen to our podcast about the book and also Lynch's movie. We loved the book, mm-hmm. did not care too much for Lynch's adaptation. No, we did not. But I will say that you should see it. Mm. Like if you love sci-fi, it is worth Oh, God, I guess it is two hours long. But, like, do something while else, like, while you're watching the movie. But it's it's worth it, if only for Sting, right? So, you know, Sting is sort of the Jason Momoa of Lynch's movie, I would say. Yeah? Yes, yes. I rated five pieces of folded laundry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would also say you might be interested in our review of Arrival, which mm-hmm. is one of Villeneuve's other movies, which I think had a big visual influence on this movie. I don't know about you, but I recognized a lot of sort of the kind of spaceship that he thinks exists in his fantasy worlds seems to be consistent over over movies. Yes. Also, Arrival is interesting because we had diverging takes on that one. We did have diverging takes, although I would say unequivocally it is worth watching, Mm -hmm. even though I wound up having a strong negative opinion about it. It's a beautiful movie, much like this is a beautiful movie. But let's get to the story behind the story, Anna. And I'm going to say just the highlights because really the story behind the story on this, I'm assuming, could take an entire season of, of episodes. So let's let's hit the highlights. Yes. And also we've done the story behind the story for the other two yes. iterations of Dune. <laughs> so if you're really curious, you can go back and listen to that. And also if you care about this movie at all, you've probably read one of the conservatively thousands of articles that have appeared sort of in conjunction with its release. There's been some good ones I would especially recommend we're talking about Hans Zimmer much more than I thought we would like already <laughs> but there's a really interesting wow. article um, in the New York Times about the score and how he made it in the time of the pandemic it was recorded all separately with invented instruments using mm-hmm. an invented language it's as interesting as the score itself I'll say the other things I'll just remind people of because they probably already know is that Villeneuve has wisely broken the book into perhaps three parts Mm. actually when i was reading up on this i think it's well known that he wanted to divide it in two but there might actually be a trilogy Hmm. although the trilogy would include parts of dune messiah that makes sense because yeah yeah because this movie pretty much covers i would actually say two-thirds of the first book so yeah 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 And the other thing that I thought was interesting as far as Villeneuve's um, approach is that he sees this as a coming of age story, but also a, quote, call to action for the youth. The youth is funny, number one. And number two, and we will probably cover this, I think that this movie misses some of the critical uh, point of view that the book has towards power. The, the book is skeptical of power. Yes, the book is very skeptical of power. We'll talk about this later in the podcast. Yeah, we will. Another interesting thing about the making of this or the thought that was put into it is that they went to Islamic scholars and historians to make sure that Herbert's kind of borrowing from Sunni Islam didn't turn into something that might be gross or stereotypical. Yeah. So I thought that was cool. Also good. No and no crosses when we see the Fremen, which I thought was a wise <laughs> choice in contrast to David Lynch's version of it. <laughs> exactly. Also, HBO has already announced a spinoff TV series, Dune the Sisterhood, 
mm-hmm. which will be about the Bene Gesserit and serve as a prequel to the film. Villeneuve is going to direct that series pilot. Oh, cool. That was a pretty good hit the highlights, right, Dan? That, was, a, that was extremely effective, Anna. Yeah, I'm, right. I'm, yeah. I'm Usually I go on a bit because I'm really interested <laughs> in the story behind the story. Um, but speaking of going on a bit, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Touche, Anna. Touche. <laughs> Would you like to break down the plot for us, please? Sure. Before I do this, let's just acknowledge this is, I believe, the third time I have recounted a Dune plot this year. There's going to be some repetition from previous Space the Nation, you know, podcast episodes, so I apologize for that. But let's go to Act 1, Arrakis is for closers. What? I'm sorry, I'm really proud of that one. <laughs> yeah, you are. That's good. Yeah, no, you're allowed. You're okay. allowed to be proud. All right. Okay. Welcome to the year 10,191. The Galactic Imperium and the Interstellar Economy runs on Vibranium. I'm sorry, I mean Spice. A substance that enables space travel, extends life, improves health, and allows one to trip balls. Spice comes from a single desert planet, Arrakis, a place where water is obviously everything. The Emperor has delegated the spice bonding to House Harkonnen, and they had encountered resistance from the Fremen, an indigenous tribe of warriors who live in the desert. The Emperor has ordered the Harkonnen out, however, and given the job to House Atreides from the planet Caladan. We meet Paul Atreides, son of the Duke and Lady Jessica. Lady J is tutoring him in the ways of the Bene Gesserit, a female-led order with a millennia-long plan to do something. He is also being trained for combat by the Duke's men. He keeps dreaming of this young woman on Arrakis, and his dreams, Anna, do have a tendency to come true. They do, although not in this movie, which I think Mm -hmm. is a strange choice. We never actually see any of his dreams being an accurate prediction of the future. We see Zendaya, right? And he's in her dreams. But at the point at which he tells the Reverend Mother, Mm -hmm. yes, my dreams come true... There is like no, we have no way of knowing that. That is true. We do see later treat his dreams do come true, or at least people that he winds up seeing. You know, he's he, yeah, yeah, which is fair. But you're right at the time. I just think yeah. it's weird that like they just sort of present this. His dreams come true. Trust us. Yeah, that's, like, that just you'll happens. see later. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the Duke, his right hand man Gurney Halleck, and his chief bodyguard Duncan Idaho are aware that the move to Arrakis is fraught with peril. The Duke sends Duncan Idaho ahead to try to negotiate an entente with the Fremen and presumably shave his beard. Anna, any iteration of Dune has a ton of backstory, and part of the challenge of turning this into a film is communicating this exposition to uninitiated viewers without being just talk, 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 talk. Villeneuve does this with a combination of Chani's narration, Paul's use of what I would call space Wikipedia, and every single character on Caladan lecturing Paul about the high-stakes politics of it all without explaining the high-stakes politics of it all. <laughs> um, which might suggest to you how whether I thought this worked. Uh, did it work for you? Mm. I was curious if it worked for you. I think he does better than Lynch. Yeah. Yeah, fair. Question mark. I mean, it's not hard. It's a low bar, yeah. but I do think he does better. I think that they streamline the whole it's a trap uh, <laughs> plot line to the point where it sort of makes more sense because we see that the emperor is setting up Atreides to fail. Yeah. Like, that's the trap. Right. And everyone right? is aware Rather of that. Rather than yeah. there's sort of like this weird faint within a faint within a faint language in the mm-hmm. in the movie, in the book. That's yeah. not we don't see the faints within faints and here it's just he's setting up atreides to fail so i think that's better in then both the book and the movie 
I, I think the constant lecturing of Paul is a weak point. So what I would say, so I'd say two things on this point. The first is I did like the decision to have Shawnee be the narrator. I actually thought that was, yes. because one of the difficulties, particularly if you're only doing the first part of the book, is that Shawnee really only comes to life literally in the second half of the book. And so the question is, how do you make this character, you know, add some substance to this character? Having her be the narrator is one way of doing it. Yeah, the problem with everyone telling Paul you don't understand what's going on here is that I actually think there was a moment where Villeneuve should have just bit the bullet and said, look, here is two minutes where I'm going to explain exactly what is going on and we're going to do this once and that's that. Instead, we get multiple warnings that are vague and unclear. Yeah, and and also... I know this bothered you because I've read the rest of your breakdown. <laughs> the The intrigue at the palace is never explained. There's right. like some intrigue, but it doesn't really go anywhere. Yeah. It's just like, oh, they're in danger. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, the intrigue at the palace with the, you know, the pointing the finger at Lady Jessica. Right. The spoilers for other versions of Dune, uh, is actually pretty cool plotline mm-hmm. to make the Duke suspect her. And it's well and also, done in Herbert's novel, I would add. Yeah. yeah. I think so, too. I did love that Caledon is Space Scotland. That <laughs> really yeah. resonated for yeah. me. Yeah. I, I'm, I love Scotland. I, I love the moors, and I love fog, and I love mm-hmm. the sea. So Space Scotland, it's hard to say, was cool. I also really liked the You're Still My Son mm-hmm. line. And I... I believe that's brand new. Yes. I don't think that's in the book or the other movie. And it adds, it's it's a, it's obviously, it's telling and not showing to a certain extent, but it gives that relationship some depth mm-hmm. that it's not allowed to get in any other way. Yeah. So I, I appreciated that. I do think one of the interesting things about the movie is that really, and I, I, I'm trying to remember this from the book, but I don't think it was is present in the book, is that really... Paul's journey is that the first half of this movie, he is bonding much more with his father. And then in the second half, it's all about his relationship with his mother. And I think Villeneuve, in giving the Duke a little more emotional depth, and also, let's be blunt, casting Oscar Isaac and giving him that magnificent beard, it makes you feel more for the Duke. Whereas in the book, I think, I always got the impression of the Duke as a noble character, but significantly out of his depth. And that's not the way I think I viewed it this time. Yeah, I mean, the whole cast is amazing. Yeah, it, yeah. It's just, this is a beautiful movie on many levels, and one of them is the cast. Yes. And I, yes, I mean, I confess I didn't get the whole Timothy Chalamet thing <laughs> for a long time. I was like, he's cute, I guess, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I get it now. <laughs> like, I understand the heartthrob aspect mm-hmm. of him. Uh, he is a child, so it feels kind of weird, but... Uh, I'm pretty sure he's in his 20s, Anna. I think it's totally okay. Legit. Yeah, right. no, he's not okay. a child. But just to be clear, he seems like a child. I but know. he is incredibly charismatic. I mean, the charisma on the screen in almost every scene is really yes overwhelming. Like they're just these are people you want to see what happens. I mean, let's put it this um, way: the the character who is supposed to be the least charismatic is played by Dave Bautista, a man not lacking in charisma. <laughs> I was going to say that even like even the villains like yeah. have more charisma than they do in the book. Yeah. I think I the agree. Baron as well. Yes. I think we should I will I will wait till the Baron is introduced to talk, start talking yes, let's, about the let's, Baron. Yes, so uh, let's So let's speaking of which, like let's move on with the plot. Let's go to act 2. When is a gift not a gift? 
Before they leave Caladan, Paul meets with the Reverend Mother, who I believe heads the B'nai Gesserit, to test him to see if he is worthy of Lady Jessica's training. He controls his impulses and passes. Yay! House Atreides then arrives on Arrakis, setting up shop in the city Arrakeen. The Duke goes about building local ties. He meets with the Fremen leader Stilgar, as well as the Imperial ecologist Liet Kynes. The B'nai Gesserit have also been busy, and Paul and Jessica are referred to as Lisan al-Jaib uh, by the locals, implying that they might be the sort of outsider prophet that they have been waiting for. The Duke, Paul, Gurney, and Kynes visit a space harvester and save the crew just before a giant sandworm destroys the harvester. Paul's first exposure to the spice in the desert causes him to have visions. He intuits that Lady J is pregnant, which is correct. An attempt is made on Paul's life, but he thwarts it, and it never comes up again, Anna. Never again. Never. Even though it's a really important plot point, as we mentioned a little while ago, uh, in both the other movie and in the book, which and it gives Lady J more depth, yes. too. So again, spoiler for the other iterations of this plot, Lady Jessica is under suspicion by the Duke because of this attempt on Paul's life. Mm-hmm. And that creates a tension in her relationship with the Duke, which mm-hmm. is much richer than this movie Yes, I will get, yes, yes, we will talk about that in a second. So, meanwhile, House Harkonnen, led by Colonel Kurtz, I'm sorry, I mean the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, is plotting to retake Arrakis. The Reverend Mother visits the Baron and promises that the Emperor's Sardaukar troops will assist in the attack. She also demands that no harm come to Lady Jessica or Paul. The Baron says, sure, totes no problem, but orders the entire Atreides family to be massacred anyway. Anna, one thing I love about this adaptation was Villeneuve's sense of scale. For example, when the arrival of House Atreides on Arrakis was truly massive in scope. The ships are huge. The crowds are are huge. You know, you get a sense of them being exposed to the desert for the first time. And I really do think it's it's one of the best ways I've seen to visually present the kind of political stakes involved. Plus, there were bagpipes, Anna. Bagpipes. I also enjoyed the bagpipes. I can't believe that sentence just left my mouth. But um, I did. <laughs> And I I think another reason why that scene really works is, yes, you get a sense of scale, like the massive presence of uh, the Atreides, but also the massive presence of the planet and how the planet is bigger Mm -hmm. and that all their might and all their weapons and all their armor are actually very ill-suited to the situation that they're in. Mm-hmm. Like, I kept on thinking as I was watching, and I don't know if this is intentional or not, that that armor looks really heavy and hot. <laughs> like, it, it looks like they might not be prepared for desert warfare. No, it looks perfectly suitable for Caladan, maybe not so much for Arrakis. Yeah. I also will point out here, did you notice Lady Jessica's shoes? Anna, I'm going to confess, as a heterosexual male, I did not notice uh, <laughs> Lady Jessica's shoes. What I did notice, however, but I did want to say this, it was interesting to me, you were talking about all the armor of, of you know, mm-hmm. the Duke and his men. The exception to that is Lady Jessica, who does seem like she's dressed appropriate to the climate. Oh, and also Paul doesn't have armor on, which I think is interesting. Yes, yes. The costumes are gorgeous. Everything, like I said, in yeah. this movie is pretty gorgeous. She's wearing platform heels but they're very specific style of platform heels they are reminiscent to me of uh chinese royalty costuming i don't know if you've ever seen that but they're really highly elevated on both the the toe and the heel they're really hard to walk in okay so long as it does not require foot binding i i would approve of the shoe choice (laughs) it's just i don't know 
it struck me that they really went through, they really thought through like what these people would be wearing. Hmm. Like to yeah. pay that much attention to like what her shoes would be and make a specific choice. Mm-hmm. Like that's a choice. That's like, even though most people probably wouldn't notice it. Yeah. So the- lots of detail. So one oddity of this adaptation, or it's a weakness, I don't know how else to put this, is that really there is very little conversation or interaction between the Duke and Lady Jessica. And in fact, I I am pretty sure they only have one conversation throughout this entire film. I mean, it's the conversation where the Duke asks Jessica to protect Paul with, with her life, you know, and asking as a member of the Bidane Jesuit. And as you say, it's sort of, if you've read the book, you totally get that conversation because you know that the Duke is somewhat suspicious of, of Lady J at that point. I would say if you have not read the book and are seeing that scene, that would never have occurred to you. Mm-hmm. And you don't realize the sacrifices that Jessica has made mm-hmm. for the Duke. I, I think there is a reference, we told you to have a daughter. but Yeah, the Reverend Mother says book, that at one point, yeah. But in the book, you understand, like, this was a betrayal, not just of, like, well, I told them I'd have a daughter, but this whole millennia-long plan right. exactly. that she has ruined now. Mm-hmm. Or And also, well, in the book, you get they drop a very, <laughs> very big hint about a future plot line, which is we do have one other chance for this, this to work out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Villeneuve said in many interviews that he wanted this adaptation to feature women more prominently, which would not be hard right. because, as we discussed, <laughs> yes. when you talked about the book, you know, Herbert's not great on that. I was going to say, one thing that they do, that Villeneuve did do, which I thought was very smart, was he switches the gender role of, of Liette Kynes. Yes, and I think that completely works. Yes. That's just great. Although, I wish he'd given her more to do. Yeah. But he, he doesn't really succeed in making the the female part of the plots more prominent. I yeah. mean, if anything, I think we discussed the Bene Gesserit doesn't seem like they're as important as they are in the book and the other movie. Yeah. So, yeah, it points for trying, I guess. Again, the costuming is great. Uh, the sense of dread that comes with yeah. the Bene Gesserit, the, the, their, their presence is great. Mm-hmm. I just don't feel like they're actually given that much power. I will say, I guess, defensive Villeneuve is that it was, if you're going to do this through Lady Jessica, it's hard to do because essentially the entire second half of this plot is about Paul coming of age and exercising his own agency and Jessica having to sort of cope with that and adjust to that fact. No, 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 no. Okay, all right. (laughs) Actually, Uh that's not true. All right. A huge part of the second half of the book is Lady Jessica Taking the Water of Life. No, no, no I'm sorry. I, I, not a second half of the book. The second half of this film. Oh, okay. I was Hold on. No, 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 no. She doesn't have much to do. No, no, like, no, 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 no. Obviously not. But in the in the okay. in the second half of this film is mostly about them making contact with the Fremen, and you know Paul having to sort of exercise agency. Although even there, we will see Lady Jessica does do some things. Yeah, I was going to say, I think she could have been given more to do. I That's think fair. that in interviews, Villeneuve, he said, he has said, well, I made her a warrior in addition to like a space nun. <laughs> and we see her fight once. Yeah, yeah. But, eh, yeah. I don't know. Uh, the other things I want to say about this section is also uh, applies to Lady Jessica. She cries too much. Mm. And they don't make a big deal about tears in this adaptation, Ooh. which is one of my favorite things about both the book and the other adaptation yeah. is the emphasis on how every bit of moisture is to be valued and crying is a big deal. And she's basically just too emotional mm-hmm. in a way. Like, 
I, people can be emotional. I don't think that's a bad. I'm saying she's pregnant, Anna. Come on, cut her some slack here. <laughs> but yes, but the Benny Gesserit are supposed to have like incredible control. Yes, that's right. Like, and I think crying in private might have been an okay way to illustrate her anguish. But she just she just cries a lot. Then I have some other questions. Why does anyone trust the Baron Dan? Like, <laughs> He looks totes trustworthy, you know, Anna. Yeah. I mean, you know, he, you know. He, his whole, like, being is like, I am evil. <laughs> <laughs> I am the bad guy in this plot. And the Reverend Mother's just like, all right, cool. Glad I got your word for it. You know, thanks. To be fair, if you're the, it, if you're the head of the B'nai Jesuit, maybe you feel so powerful that it would never occur to you that someone would lie to you. I guess you're supposed to be a truth sayer too, yeah. although they don't they really don't talk, talk about, about that. that yeah. The, yeah, right. So, and also, if she is a truth sayer, shouldn't. She had been able. Oh, but I remember he had the whole plausible deniability thing. Yes. That was his out. Was yes. that I'm just going to dump him in the desert anyway. Right. Speaking of inexplicable plot twists or turns, the Sadukar or Sardukar. The Sardukar. Yeah. We we talked about this <laughs> before, which is why again? Like, <laughs> if the emperor is trying to hide his participation in the overthrow of House Atreides. Mm-hmm. Sending your very, very recognizable and distinctive personal army seems awkward. I don't know. Yeah, that's <laughs> a thing. I mean, I think in the book they talk about, and I, and I think you do see this in the film, that they're supposed to be disguised. But that said, you know, it's a reach in terms of It just of doesn't make any sense. It's just like, it, it, especially since I think it is mentioned in this movie that the Harkonnens have their own army right. that is very good. So anyway, that actually gets us to something that I think we'll talk about more, which is there are parts of this movie mm-hmm. that feel a little like fan service mm. in that they're bits and pieces of the book yeah. that are just taken in order to show, look, we adapted we this, read the this book. Did you see we read scene. the book? We, yeah. The, yeah. And yeah. this great scene in the book, we made it a great scene in the movie. I, I think the Gamjabar scene is, is also an example, which is great scene, classic scene. We all know that scene. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like it goes anywhere exactly hmm. in the movie, I feel like. And I also feel like the attack on his life. The attack on his life was the, thought, the thing that I thought could have been deleted. I mean, it's obviously kind of essential to the novel, but in, in this... The very fact that, like, I think it's laughed at once after it happens and that's it suggests the degree to which it really didn't matter. And I think it would have streamlined the plot a little bit. Yeah. And what I mean by the, I mean, people might disagree with the Gamjabar scene. It's just, I think that's one of the scenes that the Lynch adaptation gets right. Hmm. You see, and, and Chalamet is, he's a great actor and that's, a, it's a good scene. Mm-hmm. But I feel like in the book, and in the Lynch adaptation, we see Paul's sense of himself shift. Yeah. In that scene. And it's not quite as like, transformative a, in, in this movie. That's, that's yeah. Like, it's I not agree. just he undergoes, he, he withstands that pain. Mm-hmm. It's like his whole idea of who he is right. changes. And he starts to take on this idea, like, oh, I might be the Messiah. You know? Right. And I think in some <laughs> like, ways that, that actually represents perhaps really a failure of how they filmed this. Because it, it's true. My impression of Paul in the first third of this film is, Jesus, man, get with the, you know, try to figure out what's going on. And after the Gamjabar test. The, the first third, he does seem like he's 13. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and basically, after the Gamjabar test, both in the book and I think in the, you know, in the film, you should think, okay, this is someone 
that I should be paying attention to. This is someone of substance. And I don't think that's the case in this adaptation. I, we know it because we've both read the book and we know where this is going. But I agree with you that I don't think the Gamjabar test was quite had the resonance it should have. All right, moving on. All right, let's go to Act 3, Synchronized Grunting, which is, in fact, what it says in the uh, the closed captioning when the attack occurs, <laughs> in case you were wondering on it. So, the Duke's doctor, Wellington Yue, cuts a bargain with Baron Harkonnen to save his wife. To do so, he disables Arakeen's protective shields and incapacitates the Duke, enabling the Harkonnen army and Sardaukar forces to launch a coordinated surprise attack on the Atreides forces. Yue also replaces one of Leto's teeth with a poison gas capsule to kill the Baron Harkonnen. The Baron arrives and, predictably enough, kills Yue. Leto releases the poison gas, killing himself and most of the Baron's retinue. The Baron barely avoids death by using his suspensor suit and floating above the gas. Duncan Idaho fails to locate the Duke or his family during the Harkonnen attack. He steals an ornithopter and escapes Arakeen to Liette's base. Paul and Jessica are captured, and the Baron's forces put them in an ornithopter to ferry them to the desert so they will be left to die. Using his voice from the B'nai Jesuit training, Paul successfully forces a soldier to remove Jessica's gag, and she quickly subdues the rest with her voice. They find a survival frem kit left for them by Uet. Paul and Jessica spend the night in a tent as Arakeen burns and the Duke dies. Paul has a vision of a future of holy war that he leads in his father's name. He ain't happy about this vision and lashes out at Jessica. On it, this was my favorite, I think, addition to the film from Herbert's book. I think he has this vision in the book, but I think the anger that he, he directs towards Jessica, I think it, Chalamet really brings to the, the scene. And if you think about it, Paul has legit reasons to resent his mom for what she has done. Um, in contrast to, say, another callow desert youth coming of age in a galaxy far, far away, Paul has very little agency that we have seen so far. Or does this qualify as first world problems? It's a really good question, uh, the degree of his agency, because that's a theme in the book. That's what the book is about. The, the books are about agency and fate. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, they're about a lot of things, but that's a, a big piece of them. Yeah. And as we discussed when we talked about the book, I think Herbert does an amazing job in talking about what it might be like to have some control over the future. Mm -hmm. He discusses it as being able to see a wave, but not over the wave. Right, exactly. And also being aware that every move you make will change those waves. Mm -hmm. And the... This movie doesn't even like that, you know, you know, like there's no question of like whether or not his visions are true, whether or not he can change his visions, because mm -hmm. that's a theme in the book is Paul makes a choice to go into the path that leads to jihad, which they don't call jihad in. No, they this do movie, not. I no, should no, say no. <laughs> that he chooses to go to the path that will end in a crusade. Mm -hmm. Although he's constantly thinking about it. He's constantly thinking, well, maybe I can get us off this path. Maybe I can get us off this path. Right, and I think that was, by the way, why this scene worked for me. Because you said before that you didn't think that that the movie, in contrast to the, to the novel, represented or pointed out the ambivalence that Paul feels about this and the dread of what's coming. And this is the one scene where I think that is very manifest. Paul is not happy at all about the prospect of a holy war. I think he's he finds these visions disturbing. I think he wants to resist them, and in the end, he doesn't. Right. All of that. I think all of that is true. Yeah. I just feel also that they're relying a lot on Chalamet. Yeah. <laughs> to make this feel like it doesn't come out of nowhere, right? Because 
it could feel like it comes out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. And then Villeneuve has decided what he wants to focus on, mm-hmm. right? In the book, Herbert has the room to, like, deal with a lot of different themes. Right. I mean, it's the advantage uh, of writing a novel. Lynch, yeah. Right. And, and Lynch sort of tries to deal with a lot of different themes, and that's one of the reasons why it fails as a movie. Yeah. You know, Villeneuve has made choices right. about we're going to do, we're, we're basically just going to talk about coming of age. We're just going to talk about extractive capitalism, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> and so it doesn't grapple with agency, really. It doesn't grapple with, again, this idea of fate. And that's fine. I mean, like, it, it's probably a better movie oh, mm-hmm. for not, not trying to do that. Yeah. No, I agree. We have another act, though, Dan. Would you like to proceed? We do. We are down to the last act, which is called This is Just the Beginning. So Jessica and Paul are rescued by Duncan Idaho, who takes them to an old ecological station occupied by Liette Kynes. They are then tracked down by Sardaukar forces soon after. Duncan Idaho sacrifices himself to buy time for Jessica, Paul, and Kynes to escape. They split up, and Kynes deliberately lures a sandworm that winds up devouring her and the Sardaukar troops. Paul and Jessica escape the pursuing Harkonnen forces by flying into a sandstorm with the ornithopter. They crash land and once on the ground barely escape a sandworm. I'm just going to pause here and say that sandworm was fucking awesome. I'm not mm. normally really big into sandworms. I think we agreed that like this, the sandworms in Lynch's Dune was pretty good. This one was better. They meet the Fremen, including Stilgar and Shani, uh, the young woman who has been narrating and appearing in Paul's visions. Stilgar is prepared to accept Paul into the tribe, but thinks Lady J is too old. Jessica quickly <laughs> disabuses Stilgar of that I notion. I think we're both older than she is. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, I'm saying, although I don't think we're older than Stilgar, I would say. So, you know, just to be clear. Um, Jessica quickly disabuses Stilgar of this notion by successfully defeating him in combat. Meanwhile, in Arakeen, the Baron is recovering in a tar pit and bemoaning the cost of this whole invasion. He tells his nephew Raban to squeeze Arrakis for every last ounce of spice. A Fremen tribe member, Jamis, protests against letting Paul and Jessica into the tribe. In a ritual duel to the death, Paul kills him. Jessica wants to go off-world, but Paul decides to join the Fremen to realize his father's dream of bringing peace to Arrakis and, I don't know, maybe hang out with Shani for a little bit. (laughs) See realize his father's dream of bringing peace to Arrakis like mm, really I I think that that is what he thinks in that moment but this is another place where I think Villeneuve has made some choices that make the movie easier to make I'm not denying that I am just look literally Paul says that at the moment so like that's all I'm saying you know but yeah I know but he's had all these visions of and that's just you yes. know what? Yes. You know what? I don't think you're going to want to hear this, but I'm going to suggest it. Maybe Paul is just really into Chani and is coming up with any excuse whatsoever <laughs> to stay with Chani. Okay? I'm just going to put that out there. That Maybe that's it. And so he just comes up with this yeah. bullshit excuse. The film- yeah, genocidal crusade. <laughs> uh, <laughs> horniness. Yes. Genocidal crusade. Horniness. That's the history of man on earth, really. <laughs> I think I think we've uncovered some fundamental truths during this podcast. <laughs> so the film ends with Paul uh, seeing that the Fremen, in a supreme display of desert power, can in fact ride the sandworms. So Anna, we know from the very beginning of this title card that although the movie is called Dune, it actually says Dune Part One, and we know that this ends approximately two thirds of the way, I think, through uh, Herbert's book. Do you think there will be parts two and three? Because I don't believe they have been greenlit yet. 
I think so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's done really well at the box office. Oh, good. As in, like, people going to the movie. Yeah. And it's a cultural phenomenon. They already see that. Yeah. It, it has lived up to the hype, at least in these opening weeks, mm-hmm. which is all that really matters. Well, you know? it's also impressive if it's doing well in the box office, because, again, this was unusual. In that it, there, I mean, well for pandemic times. Right, I but, think. like, there have been movies that have done well that have been released only in the theaters. Releasing the movie mm-hmm. simultaneously in theaters and via HBO Max, you would expect it to under, you know, to, to eat into mm-hmm. the actual movie grosses. And if it's doing well, that is good to hear. Well, I think this is an example of HBO being able to play the long game, mm. you know, to the detriment of everyone else involved in the movie. Yeah, Villeneuve, <laughs> to be clear, is not happy about this and right. has sort of gone not full Christopher Nolan, but 90% Christopher Nolan in objecting to this point. Yeah, and, and they he, they are depriving everyone who's got points, yeah. you know, on box office from, from making a profit, but they are securing their place in the culture. Mm. And getting buy-in for more people to keep subscribing to HBO Max, which is, I think, all they really care about, right? Well, also, I'm, assu- and I'm assuming if Villeneuve has agreed to direct the first episode of this Bene Gesserit thing, then probably they've made up. Well, I mean, the the pockets are very deep. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. well, I think that HBO's pockets are pretty deep. Mm-hmm. You know, not like spice deep, but pretty deep. <laughs> uh, and also, I think that they realize that his complaining about this stuff is, I mean, who cares, yeah. really? You know, like, it's not going to keep fans away. I think the film is good enough so that no one is going to look at this and think, oh, well, this was a disaster. You know, we should yeah. n- not do that again. And so, yeah, it, it means yeah. that the, the, the carping doesn't uh, turn the narrative, as it were. Yeah. yeah. Dan. Anna. Is there IR in this movie? Anna, dreams make good stories, but international relations is what happens when we're awake. <laughs> so hell yeah, there's IR in this film. <laughs> um, some of this we have talked about before, but I, I these are the things that struck me in terms of international relations from this film version of Dune. First, what I really genuinely think this film actually gets is the idea of what we would call geopolitics. So geopolitics is one of those words that is often thrown around, particularly inside the Beltway, when people want to sound smart. But it should be clear what it refers to, which is the actual ways in which geography and the environment affect both an actor's foreign policy and their grand mm-hmm. strategy. And the Duke actually has a sentence here, and I know this is talking, not showing, but I but I actually think the showing complements the talking here, where he says that on Caladan... They had power because they controlled the air and the sea. And then when they move to Arrakis, um, they have to switch to desert power. And I actually think this is a theme that is well expressed um, in this film. And, you know, obviously seeing the Fremen in the desert, seeing the Fremen control the sandworms is a huge thing. It makes sense that that to control Arrakis, you're going to have to have desert power. And therefore, it is unsurprising that you expect the Fremen will will you know, have an interesting sequel, let's put it that way. But again, I think it gets geopolitics well. Second, something that, that this adaptation does, and again, it's it's just a, a, almost a throwaway line of, of dialogue, but I think it matters, is the cost of conquest. This is talked about in the, in the book some, but, you know, there is a common belief, I think, that sometimes war can be profitable if you secure some strategic raw material, in this case, spice. In point of fact, resource wars are extremely rare, 
you know, so for example, consider oil, which is the obvious parallel um, to what uh, you read about in Dune. There are a number of scholars out there, Emily Meyerding, Eugene Goltz, Jeff Colgan, Rose Kalanick, all of whom have written pointing out that in fact, wars over oil are much rarer and in fact, almost non-existent um, during the industrial age, despite oil's supreme importance to fueling an industrial economy. So it is good to hear the Baron complain about the costs of what he's done and the repercussions of that. The third thing uh, I thought was good is uh, the idea that you use promotion as a form of coup proofing. I will continue to maintain that the emperor putting House Atreides in charge of Arrakis does not make a ton of sense given the supreme (laughs) importance of spice. But... There is research in international relations that shows that in military dictatorships, there is more risk-taking behavior. And one of the reasons conflicts are launched is that it allows militaries, particularly military leaders, to promote potential challengers to battlefront, you know, commands with the idea that that way they will either fail or hopefully be killed. And in that sense, you do sort of see what the emperor is doing to House of Trade. Oh, I think that's that's definitely the logic. Oh, that's definitely the logic. I'm just saying it still doesn't make any sense given the importance of spice. But yes, I, I, there, is <laughs> but a, there is a... Again, yeah. referred to here, I can't believe I'm defending, but yeah. referred to here and made clear in the book, and I just want to apologize to everyone listening if you haven't <laughs> read the book or seen the other movie, yeah. but I think it is impossible to talk about this movie without thinking about the others. Yes. I just, I mean... It would be interesting to talk to someone who had no idea about Dune. <laughs> right. It's like talking to someone who, who doesn't know anything about movie. Star Wars. Yeah. 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 They, the Harkonnens have stockpiled spice. That's correct. Yes. Yes. And so in theory, so, that would allow them to ride it out. I did notice that. That's a fair And point. also allow them to price gouge. Yes. Yes. Although notice no price gouging because he actually says don't sell too, you know, don't, he, he says be subtle about the selling. Yeah. Yeah. And then finally, there is a a phenomenon in in international economics called the Dutch disease. This refers to when a state uh, suddenly stumbles onto a natural resource that is extremely valuable, like oil or diamonds. What tends to happen when you do that is that your economy metamorphosizes so that only the production of that commodity becomes the important thing. All other sectors wind up uh, essentially being winnowed out. You sort of see that referenced in the movie when they talk about the fact that originally the idea was to turn Arrakis into more of a a greenhouse, as it were. And then once they discovered the spice, that falls by the wayside. That's entirely consistent with the way the Dutch disease would be uh, would play out in the Dune universe. I do think that phenomenon is really interesting. And I think we have a, a world of proof to suggest that it is a true theory. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the hidden engine for the plot yeah. in general of all of the Dune books. And I also think it's another place where in order to make a movie that's comprehensible, you have to strip away some of the subtleties and ambiguities. Yeah. Because one of the things that happens in in, in this world mm-hmm. is that the Fremen are kind of caught between having so much pride in their way of life mm-hmm. and turning Dune into a paradise. Right. And also having power, like if if spice production, there's the threat of like reducing spice production, which is what would happen if you greened Arrakis, you would no longer get as much spice and would threaten their power as well. So just there's such cool politics in the Dune world. I wanted to ask you, actually, maybe I'll just ask it here. I think it's just 
one of those plot lines and one of those worlds that is catnip to so many of us, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I do think part of that is the hero's journey mm-hmm. that Paul has. And that's, you know, what people love, you know, especially young men, <laughs> like love those stories. But this plot, this world just grabs you, yeah. you know, and I do think the politics is part of it. Even if you're not thinking about politics, it's, the intricacies of the world and the conflicts of the world that draw people in. I mean, again, I I will say this. I you know I had not read Herbert's book no, until earlier this year, and and reading it, what I am legitimately impressed by. I mean, there's things you can critique. I'm not going to deny. I'm not going to say it's a perfect novel, but what he does get right is super important, which is to say mm-hmm. he gets right the role that ecology plays. In particularly in terms of you know what happens if you're operating in a capitalist system to some extent. And the role that resistance plays and, and religion can play in terms of, of motivating conflict. And so I would say he, the fact that he wrote this in 1965, I still find astonishing because essentially he mm-hmm. anticipates a lot of the conflict, particularly in the Middle East, that occurs over the next 50 years. And so, it, yeah, I, I agree that these sorts of phenomenon are fascinating. And, you know, again... You can nitpick at this, and there are things that I, I don't think he gets perfectly right, but as a work of fiction that nonetheless takes politics seriously, th- this is really good. Like We discussed this with the Foundation adaptation. There's seminal science fiction works that I look, we will do more of these mm-hmm. for our Cannon Fodder series, right. which, which we haven't done in a while, but we will, mm-hmm. uh, that when you go back and look at them, they are so much better talked about than read. Right. You know, Foundation, I think, is a really good example of that. And to some extent, I'm going to offend like 90% of our audience, but the Star Wars movies, you know, they hold up because it's great filmmaking. Mm -hmm. You know, their stories are not great. (laughs) That's been pointed out a thousand times. Right. It's a very simple story. Right. I shouldn't say it's not like it's, it's just a, I would point out in a film Lucas that's not a bad thing. Yeah, I would say that's not a bad thing. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Agree, agree, agree. And Lucas wanted it to be that way. He wanted this very, like, this is a hero's journey, period, point blank. And attempts to complicate it have not worked out well. Fair enough, yes. (laughs) But then there's there's books like this one that, I mean, generations and generations and generations, like, latch onto. Mm. I think I'm just talking about, I I don't know why I'm so interested in, in articulating this when it's just kind of a truism, right? Well, everybody loves Dune. It's classic, but it's such a complicated set of ideas. Yeah. You know, well, it, I, it, it surprises me how, how much it sustains interest over generations yeah. a little bit. And I guess the way I would put it is that the thing I, I, you know, I think we, we, we both arrive, I think at roughly the same point on this film, which is that it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it is a faithful adaptation in a lot of ways. And I think it adds something to the book. It also subtracts a lot of things. I mean, it has to. There's no way that yeah. you can you can do this in an appropriate way. But I there are things that this film does in terms of getting at the scale of the politics that I haven't seen in other films and I think that's that's to Villeneuve's credit. Um and mm-hmm. I definitely want to see what happens, you know, in the I want to see a sequel. Yeah. So, speaking of which, Anna. Yeah. Did you find a way to point out the evils of capitalism in this film? No, Dan, I didn't. Uh, it is a perfect <laughs> example of capitalism, like frictionless. 
to say. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, for a detailed discussion of my feelings about Dune World and capitalism, yeah. go back and listen to those other podcasts. Yeah. I do think that the, this is another occasion. The film itself is an example of something that Adorno would have hated, you know, which is the, the reiteration of IP over and over and over. I also do like the couple of gestures that he makes towards extractive capitalism being a bad thing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I've said this in the other episodes about Dune. I, I do find it weird that there's kind of an unquestioning acceptance of hereditary rule, <laughs> but that's sort of space. That's like, you know, science fiction does. Yeah, that. I was going to say, that's not, and, and it's and not it's unique to science true, fiction, but yeah, yeah. Right, it's not unique to science fiction, but it is also true that Herbert, is interested in the ways that power corrupts and right. it makes more sense in his vision of this world that that exists so he can question it. And I will be very curious to see if that that is a theme that emerges in the second film, assuming they make it, because it's not really in this one, to be fair. And people have different thoughts about the white saviorhood element of yeah. the Dune plot. Yeah. And I... There are people and some people of color that argue that the movie is actually criticism of white saviorhood, which you, I see that. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, it, because again, for Herbert, power is corrupting right. and Paul is not necessarily a hero. Mm-hmm. Right. I will be very, very interested to see how ambiguous Paul turns out to be in the next movie. I agree. And this is where I am. Whether or not his character is good or evil, you know. And I would add, this is where I'm glad that Timothy Chalamet is playing him because he's definitely an actor who's capable of, of pulling off those kinds of nuances. God, he's so cute. He's just such a a doll. Like I would add. You just, you do cutie. Like, I just, Love him to death. Oh, Anna. Just love him to death. I would add Jesus. one other thing, and again, this is a light year improvement on the Lynch version of this, is that this is a very diverse cast, and yeah. that it's reflected but not just in the Fremen, but also in the uh, Atreides' clan, as well as House Harkonnen, frankly. So, you know, it, it's mm-hmm. in that sense, it's a it's nice to see. Dan, Dan wait. Did you hear that? Boom. 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 I'm just assuming that in, in Dune World, it's it's Tom Zimmer going, boom, is the debris field. Bagpipes. I don't know how to make the sound of bagpipes. Oh, good. Dan, we've entered the debris field, which is where we talk about things we didn't get a chance to talk about earlier. What do you got? A few things. First of all, again, Villeneuve has, I think, talked about the fact that he read this book as a teenager. He clearly wanted a faithful adaptation. There are ways in which you can argue maybe he was too faithful. That said, the ornithopters were really fucking cool. I didn't think you could actually turn that into film, and I thought they they did a great job. I like the use of the hand gestures that you also see. I think that was an effective way of of communicating, and much better than the way Lynch had uh, <laughs> tried to do the same thing. I think they get subtitles yeah. in, in the... <laughs> yes. Things that did not make as much sense were the personal shields in terms of fighting. So they're explained that, like, the shield, you know, prevents really quick movements, but slow movements can penetrate. If you watch any of the actual fighting scenes, there is no way that that knives are moving slow enough to penetrate these shields. It's just it. I don't know why they bothered to stick with that. It made no sense to me. Also, no satellites around Arrakis. Or Arrakis. At one point, the Baron says that, which implies they will somehow be able to, you know, invade willy nilly. I I don't remember that making a ton of sense, but maybe that was in the book. And then finally, I never really thought I would write Jason Momoa is the best thing in a film. But here we are, and this is not an insult to the film, because he is amazing in this film. 
partly it's the role, and I think it's that Duncan Idaho, but, but Momoa makes Duncan Idaho seem alive in a way that I'm not sure any of the other characters are. The other characters sort of have this dour sense about them, which I kind of understand. Mm-hmm. And, and it might be that Duncan Idaho is the only one allowed to crack a joke, but nonetheless, he's just alive in every goddamn scene he's in. And I, it, 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 I appreciated Jason Momoa in a way that I had not before. I'd always thought he was a good-looking man, great dude, bro. He is fantastic in this film. He is. He's, he springs to life, yeah. right? He's such an alive presence in the movie. Yeah. And it does kind of show up the dourness of everyone. Yeah, that's it's true. Yeah, exactly. Although one thing I was going to say as a compliment to this movie is this movie does a great job with dread. Yeah. You know, like you do feel through the costuming, mm-hmm. through the sound, through everything, there is a buildup of like something bad is going to happen. Which really worked right? in Herbert's novel as well, I would add. So like, yeah. Yep, yeah, yep, yep. Yep. I do, it, it's funny, Duncan Idaho is a fan favorite going back. Like he is, Duncan Idaho is one of the best characters in all science fiction right. in the book. Yeah. And Jason Momoa does him justice in a film. Yes. Which is a lot. Yeah. Like that is a, it was a tough ass mm-hmm. and he, fulfilled he it. does yeah i did write in my notes like maybe they won't kill him <laughs> oh oh anna i'm sorry he's doing so good maybe they won't he kill was him. really good maybe maybe they'll keep him alive this time <laughs> maybe that'll be a difference from the book but no <laughs> go ahead it's also one of the most um like blatant and kind of hilarious pieces of fan service ever is that in the books, mm-hmm. Duncan Idaho is brought back as an Android because people love him. So Are you much. serious? Oh man. I didn't want yeah. To. Oh, Herbert bad. brings back Duncan Idaho. Be, essentially. I mean, it's sort of part of the plot, but also just because people, just people love, love him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he is the sting of this movie. Yes. I would say, which is interesting by uh, the way, because you do, there is no fade Routha in this version which yeah. i assume yeah. you don't see the emperor either i assume you're setting that up you're going to see that in the sequel but that, that was an interesting move by villeneuve and i also love the special effects the sandworms and the ornithopters ornithopters ornithopters, I ornithopters. ornithopters. ornithopters yeah. i'll just call them because they just call them thropters yeah. and that's easier to say right. and it amuses me that that everyone is so faithful to how they're supposed to fly because that just would not work it's just a <laughs> physical impossibility that you could have something fly by flapping its I don't care on it. It was really fucking cool. I don't care. And it it also true it is cool. They managed to make it not look stupid. Yes, that's the point. Right? Yeah. Like cuz the even the word flapping suggests an amount of silliness to me like that you wouldn't want to have in a war vehicle. <laughs> right. <That's- laughs> so flapping and war don't go together, but somehow they have created a flapping helicopter <laughs> that also looks pretty dangerous. Mm-hmm. So my hat's off to you, whoever came up with that set design or that, that, yeah. uh, my hat's off to you, whoever came up with that design. It's a really good job. Mm-hmm. This is going to get some of those special effects and scene, Technical, costume, yeah, soundtrack yeah. Oscars that, so. that sometimes the big movies do. Yeah. Not sure about the rest of it getting Oscar noms, but, it's been a weird year. No one cares about the Oscars anyway anymore. Yeah. So, yes. And with that, Anna, I believe we have to move to our last Ted Lasso recap for the season. So we're recapping uh, Ted Lasso episode 12, the season finale of season two, correct? Yes, we are. So tell us what happened, Anna. Well, this is the briefest of rundowns. <laughs> there are four main plots. There is the fallout from Ted's panic attack becoming public. Mm-hmm. 
we know that Nate is the one that dropped uh, the intel to Trent Grimm, independent. We also have Sam's big choice as a plot line, whether or not he's going to stay uh, or go and play for the African billionaire. And there is Roy and Keeley and Jamie and Nate, mainly Roy and Keeley, mm-hmm. having some... I don't know quite how to say what's going on in their relationship. I mean... They're on a break, you know? Growing pains? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, Roy is so perfect. There is, like, a little weirdness to, like... You know what? I'm not actually... You no, know, I take all that back. Because even in an amazing relationship, mm-hmm. once it's gone on a bit, you can hit a place where your interest in each other has to shift. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And I, I think that's might be what's happening here. I don't know if that's been thought through by the writers, but I can see that in the real world, after your first year together, there is kind of like, oh, but do we really... All right, we really were hot for each other. Right. Is this what it is now? <laughs> we, like, you know, we yes. Once, once the initial, for lack of a better putting it, crush phase or, you know, the, the initial bloom phase is worn off, what does a sustainable relationship look like? Yeah, I think that's sort of what's going on here. Yeah. Although, again, I'm not sure how much that's conscious. But anyway, that is happening. And then, of course, man, there's the fate of the team. That's true. Well, is the team going to go back to Premier League or not? It all depends on the one big game. I want to say one thing about this episode in general, which is I liked it. Mm-hmm. I liked it more than any other episode this season. I, I've not been a huge fan of this season. That's correct. And I think it speaks to the the potential strength that this you know show's creators have mm-hmm. that they were able to do some very sitcom tropey things and still have it emotionally resonate and still have some surprises. Yes. So I don't know. I think that, that, that when season one was at its best, mm-hmm. that's also what it did. Right. So and speaking of liking things, Dan, do you want to go into detail about what you liked about this episode? Sure. I will. I liked many things. There were a few things I was not quite as thrilled with. So the things I liked, first of all, some of the tabloid headlines in the response of, of Ted heading the panic attack. Most importantly, panic at the lasso, which is a pretty goddamn good tabloid head. You know, well done there. Keely saying, fuck you, Piers Morgan. Just, you know. Two Piers Morgan. Two Piers Morgan. Because he's. Yeah. yeah, you know, like, and, yeah. and who of a, who among us has not wanted to say that to Piers Morgan on it? Keeley and Rebecca crying together when Keeley gets the promotion, or not the promotion, but the the offer to basically start her own boutique firm. I thought that was that was lovely and and just well done and sweet, and I might have teared up a little bit. Roy saying, and this was the line of the season, Anna. This was the single funniest thing this entire season has done. Is when Roy is ranting to the Diamond Dogs about not appearing in the photo spread of Keeley. And he just said, it hurt my feeling. Just one. (laughs) Just one. And it was just, well done, Brett Goldstein. You deserve another Emmy just for that line read alone. It It was very good. And I was pleased to see Sam open a Nigerian restaurant. Like, I, I think Sam has been, and I wrote a column about this, being a sort of, you know, mature pixie dream boy to some extent. And it was nice to see Sam actually do something for Sam because he, he has seemed like a, a bit of a pleaser for everyone else. There were a few things I did not like in the episode. Ted continually appeasing Nate, even after it's Nate has just told him off. I mean, maybe that's a display of maturity, in the, like, but in the second half where he's trying to buck up Nate, where he's trying to make Nate feel like a part of the team, there's a point after which, like, I, I'm more on Coach Beard's side about this, where I guess, like, there's a certain point after which 
you know, there is an unbreakable vow that has been or been broken, and I think there have to be repercussions from that. The plot line between Keeley and Roy, the whole Spanish vacation gambit, I agree with you that there are ways in which this could have been done well. That, like, I, I can see a situation where Keeley, about to start a new business, is nervous about that. And, you know, Roy, who is sort of transitioning in his career as well, they're going to be at odds. But the way it actually played out, I think, was badly done. And it was like they were trying to write everything in a five-minute scene that didn't make any sense. Because, like, in the end, you know what? Keeley could have gone for a week um, and then gone back for a week. Like, compromise was not hard on this issue, um, even for couples that might be having issues. And so, like, I didn't like that. And then finally, and I know we don't talk about soccer actually all that much on Ted Lasso, but the way they cut the scene where Jamie scores the goal, Jamie Tart was blatantly offsides. That was a clear <laughs> offsides. There is no two ways about it. They tried to make it seem like he was breaking just when the pass happened. But if you look at the way the scene is cut, he was clearly offsides, and yet nothing happens. Sorry. I, I, as a sports fan, sports ball fan, I, I found that problematic. Anna, what about you? What did you like? I hurt my feelings. Oh, yeah. I feel like the entire season might have been building to that line. <laughs> yes, exactly. Or at least Roy's arc yes. has been building to that line. Uh, I also loved Mascot Idol. <laughs> the, the tryouts for the new mascot. Congratulations. And yes, Tina. Congratulations to Tina Faham. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I also appreciated that they did bring the mascot out on the field with a little tiny hat. This yes. Hat. <laughs> doggy. I, we always have to shout doggy. Yes. I also really appreciate Jamie's consistently bad sense of style, <laughs> which we don't talk about enough. No, we like, don't. He's always dressed very foolishly. Also, what is the deal with that braid in his hair or whatever that thing he had in his hair for I, the whole season? That made no sense to me. And also the the little, I I think, intentional diagonal thing on his eyebrow. Yeah, I think that was intentional. Right? Yes, like, yes. You know, he, he dresses like a lad from the 90s <laughs> and with like the fanny pack and everything. <laughs> and I like that that just is bad. He's yeah. just a bad dresser. We just don't, we don't explore it very much. But that's very much his personality, too, yeah. that he would think that this looks cool. And so he's going to stick with yeah. it. I also really loved uh, the line that Sam has to his dad about whether or not he's going to go to the African team. Isn't this decision too important to be left to the universe? Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a great exchange about whether, how much thought you should put into a big decision really. And I agree with Sam's dad that I believe, you know, when you know Mm -hmm. about life changing decisions, Mm -hmm. that there isn't one choice that will feel right. Mm -hmm. If you let those feelings develop. Also, I have a lot of thoughts about the spirituality that it kind of underlies that statement, but we can save that for another time. That might be best, yes. Okay. I also really appreciated Nate's somewhat nonsensical monologue to Ted, where it kind of switches emotional gears a few times. Because mm-hmm. I think that is an accurate portrayal of how people develop that kind of resentment to someone Yes. Else. And by the way, this is where I, I know we have disagreed on, or we, you've been less a fan of season two, and I, I agree it's not quite as good as season one, but I actually thought Nate's arc was extremely well done this season and, and entirely yeah. believable. I think so, too. I think great acting yeah. also. I can't remember the actor's name, but doing a very, if you think about it, that arc mm-hmm. is hard to pull yes. off. To be both the formerly timid nice guy right. and someone you genuinely do not like. Yeah. 
like a genuine bad guy. He really, I, and, the insecurity and self loathing he brings to that character, he brought to that character this season was was impressive, and it, it's a fully realized character. And and he will be a great antagonist, I assume, in season three. Yeah, yeah, and a, a, a rich one, yes, too. Yeah, right, a, a complicated one, and I think it's a fairly accurate portrayal of how people become assholes. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. That they, most people in the world, I believe, who are terrible people have been hurt very badly Mm. at some point. And then a lot of times, like I think happens with Nate, that hurt has festered in a way that distorts the narrative of what actually happened. Exactly. And and that rant that he gives to Ted, I'm like, wait, what? And but from, from yeah, that didn't happen. That's what I mean. Yeah. It's sort of nonsensical. Like his version of what happened is just not true. Right. But but you're right, right that you can. That's how you can build that kind of false narrative. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, and it is true for him. Yes, exactly. You know, yeah. and you probably could not t- talk sense into him. So I believe he is going to be a straight up antagonist, and there's not going to be. I don't want to project too much, but I can see him. There's not 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 a lot of guilt, yeah. not a lot of second thoughts. Like he's just going to go. Uh, I also. Um, I hope we see more of Trent Krim. Independent. Independent. There was a small I po- like that character, yeah. and I appreciate also uh, leaving journalism to do something more soulful. Yes, although actually, my hunch is I wonder if Trent is going to wind up taking Keeley's job. Interesting. Which I don't think would work for Trent. I don't know he would be good at no, that. No, no, I agree. <laughs> but it, there is a logic to that in terms of having him around. But but yes, I did like him saying Trent Krim independent. That was very good. Yeah, uh, the thing that I was not as big a fan of, uh, the rant that a Kofu gives after Sam turns <laughs> him down, it comes from nowhere, and it's so extreme, I kept waiting for it to be a joke. <laughs> I kept waiting for him to be like, he does this enormous rant, and then be like, glad I got that out of the way. That actually, oh, you know what, you that would have been a better, like, I like that better, that's, 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 yeah, you know what, that's a good, that's a good note. <laughs> I guess I just don't quite believe that the person we've seen for these few episodes that seems pretty mm-hmm. great as a person would wind up doing this kind of not just angry rant, but like comically obscene. I think the thing I am particularly <laughs> pleased about is that Anna is defending a billionaire. And so like this is I this is I'm enjoying this immensely. Yes. A billionaire who thinks there billionaires okay, shouldn't exist. Enough. So <laughs> yeah. I mean that's why I'm defending him in part. And again, like that's why that right. rant is so crazy. I also was not a fan of, you know, Coach Beard tells Ted that he should try and get Nate to apologize, that he should go to Nate and lay out the groundwork for an apology, Mm -hmm. something like that. It's, we both love the Nate arc. The weak point of the Nate arc is how the other members of the team deal with him. Yeah. Let me put it this way. The only thing I thought about this is that the fact that Ted is so passive in, in terms of coping with it is frustrating, but also believable given his character. And I think you can argue that part of his character growth, presumably in season three, is also going to be learning when does he need to confront people? When does he actually need mm-hmm. to... And because people started truthfully. to answer yeah. in a real way. <laughs> like <Right>. strangers. <laughs> you would ask, how are you? And a stranger would be like, well, my mom's sick, you know, and I can't get the vaccine. Or, well, my business is crazy. Like... I found myself having intense personal conversations with total strangers, which isn't a bad thing. But right, it's a be different ready thing. For it, yeah, you know, yeah, and that the reason I bring that up is, of course, is because in the first part of the episode, when everyone finds out about Ted having the panic attack, there's this 
kind of faux solicitous how right. are you ted yeah you know and that made me in the faux solicitousness made me think of like yes let's learn from this that that's a bad thing to do yeah. if you don't yeah. really mean it like if you ask someone how are you and you don't really want to know it's mm -hmm. kind of an insult i also wonder if there was a pandemic in this world no there was not the, the pandemic was never mentioned in, yeah. in this so no yeah and it, it's I kind of want to know how Ted would have mm. dealt with a pandemic, but I guess we'll never know. Another thing that I, I, I took away from this and hope others took away as well is surprise trips are bad. Yes, that is very true. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. Don't. <laughs> I've tried to do it myself. Pretty it's much a, it, it's a, at best, so it's a high wire it. act. And at worst, it leads to breakups. Yeah. You can do. I've you know, set aside this money for mm. us to take a trip, you know, or like I've explored this option, but like I yeah. bought the tickets no, it's not is good. not a, yeah. a, a good gift. I like Ted saying every choice is an opportunity. It's a good way to think about life. And I think I may have learned that, that Ted can be a bad hmm. dad sometimes because I think that his relationship with Nate, Nate does hmm. have a point. There is a, a kernel of truth to his That's correct. of yes. what happened. Which is that I do think that once he was promoted to assistant coach, that Ted stopped reaching mm -hmm. out to him. And I think also Roy. Now, I, I right, understand. Yeah. Why and also, happened. I think this gets paired with the fact that Ted also wants Roy to come on as a coach after Nate does. And I think that that's also part of it. But but I completely agree with you on that point. That's a fair. Yeah. Yeah. I think a, a real good dad would realize that someone who's kind of been plucked from, you know, the assistant yeah. associate manager equipment guy into a leadership role is going to feel right. out of his depth and is going to want to have a little bit of assistance and support yeah. and yeah. feedback. That's fair. Yeah. So I mm -hmm. think it's interesting <laughs> that you know, we've seen more of Ted's flaws this season than, than yeah. the yeah. first one, for sure. I also really did like, as you referred to, Sam deciding that he cares too much mm -hmm. about what other people think and he needs to do things mm -hmm. for himself. So, In terms of what I learned, uh, Anna, I think really just three things. First, as Sharon puts it, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. That is a good line. And if that is Sharon's last line in the entire show, it, it's a good way to exit it. You know that's a... No a quote, right? Like it's a thing people no. say. Oh yeah, I I've not heard that in <laughs> a while, but it's not original. I'm sure it's show. not original to the show, but not like it's it, it was the first time I think I'd heard okay. it, so that's good All to right. know. That said, Higgins also Higgins turned into Yoda this season. I think he had a lot of good bon mots, but he says that a good mentor hopes you will move on. A great mentor knows you will, and I think that that sets up very nicely how Rebecca responds to Keeley, you know, leaving the club. That makes sense. And I think, like you, I liked season one better than season two, but the way they stuck the landing on this leaves me very hopeful for season three. I am hopeful as well. I think that some of the problems in season two, yeah. sophomore slump happens to everybody i think it can happen to the to the best of us and indeed once you come out of nowhere yeah. like this show did um to continue to defy expectations mm -hmm. is pretty tough i also think this show um they did have to produce those two extra yes, episodes that's, uh, eh, probably right. not great probably mm -hmm. not great for the show so i hope that for season three they're able to have a little more independence basically and, and that yes. makes me more hopeful and that is it for our show dan to remind listeners, we have a few things coming up, including Event Horizon, Waterworld, and The Last Policeman. Also, 
Dan, do you remember way back in the before times? We did Expanse. <gasps> You're right. Podcast. We did, Anna. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is how That's this show true. started out. It started out as an Expanse yes. recap show. I know. And you know what else? What else, Anna? The Expanse <gasps> is coming back. Yay! So we will return to our roots as an Expanse recap show. And I, <laughs> I feel weird about that, Dan. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it, but at the same time, I really loved like looking at so many different well, things. Well, so, I believe the last season uh, of The Expanse is only six episodes, so this is going to be a short interlude for us. But I look forward to wrapping that up and, and sticking that landing, as it were. Yes. Hopefully they will stick their yes, landing and exactly. we will stick our landing. If you have enjoyed the content that Dan and I produced, you might want to support us on Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash space the nation uh, there are lots of benefits to becoming a patron including special episodes amas other stuff that dan mentioned at the top of the show and you also can support us by rating reviewing us wherever you get your podcasts i don't think i have much else so dan until then keep this channel open for more